in 2016, one of the greatest power forwards to ever play the game of basketball retired from the San Antonio Spurs. Now, I say that power forward's name might mean something to three people in this room. All three of us watch and follow basketball. Um, his name is Tim Duncan. He played for the San Antonio Spurs. Um, you may not be familiar with him, but he is one of the greatest to ever play the game of basketball. Five-time NBA champion, three-time NBA Finals MVP, two-time uh, league MVP, 15-time NBA All-Star, and many other illustrious awards. Tim was one of those, uh, a rare breed of players, especially in the modern NBA. He was a guy that would just show up in actually normal-looking clothes, that what they show up to these games in, they call fashion, but it's just some wacky-looking clothes. But Tim Duncan, just you know, showing up in jeans and a T-shirt, he was um, one to show very little emotion on the court. He just played his game, was very consistent. Um, and finally, he was a rare breed of player because he only played for one team and for one coach for a very, very long time. Uh, the nickname that was given to Tim Duncan was actually provided by another famous player of the game, Shaquille O'Neal. How many of you, okay, I don't, I, this almost pains me to do. How many of you actually know who Sha Shaq is? Okay, okay, that's very encouraging. Um, but uh, Shaq referred to Duncan as the big fundamental. He was the big fundamental, and that's the nickname that stuck for him. Here's what Shaq had to say. I called him the big fundamental because his fundamental skills were perfect. Tim, like Larry Bird, didn't run fast or jump high, but he'd eat you alive with his fundamentals. I was probably 80% talent, 20% fundamental. Tim Duncan was 80% fundamental and 20% talent. It didn't matter what I said, what I did, you could never get to him. You would give him 30 one night and he would come back the next night and give me 30. Nothing could break him. He fundamentally earned all our respect. Tim was never the, fla the flashiest player or the most famous player, but he remains one of the greatest to have ever played the game of basketball. This right here, this idea is precisely what we are trying to achieve in our two-month focus on spiritual disciplines. And this is why we're requiring everyone to take this deeper dive, not just sort of doing our isolated things that we'll be doing in the future. Now, you may be naturally gifted in a certain area. You might be, like Shaq was 80% talent. You might be a naturally gifted speaker, preacher, counselor, host. Um, some of you might even have the privilege of becoming well-known for your skills someday. And there is nothing wrong with that. But before we really take our focus and try to niche in to one specific spiritual gift and focus and ministry within the church, what we are trying to do here is within the realm of the Christian game of life, we want to produce individuals who are big fundamentals. They are solid on every bit of the fundamental skills that are necessary to be successful within the Christian life. I speak to myself first when I say this, but if you don't become the kind of person that others can follow, like you, individually, on your own, how in the world can you hope to lead others in ministry? You really have two options with that. Either you can become that kind of true spiritual leader within your church, or you can become a hypocrite uh, who pretends to have it all together so that you can get a leadership position and feel better about yourself because somebody stuck a title on you and you're like, wow, I'm so spiritual now because I have this position. And we gauge ourselves by the wrong metrics. It's my hope that, you know, let's say as we merge with LifePoint, that the folks in the congregation don't look at us trying to get involved and see a bunch of just try-hard kids that lack real substance. 
On the contrary, we have to be quick to follow Paul's advice to Timothy that we as young people must become examples in godly conduct. People see through fake leadership. People can see if you're authentic or not, and they'll see it very, very quickly. So let's become really, really big on the fundamentals starting this very night in 1 Corinthians 15. And of course, there is no more fundamental place to begin than the gospel itself, uh, verses 1 through 8 within 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Uh, someone who has Fadila's number, she wanted to listen in, and I just it just popped to mind, and so I don't want to make sure I want to make sure she doesn't feel excluded. So if someone who has Fadila's number could give her a call, I would appreciate that. That'd be fine. Thank you. I I apologize. Um, so we have the gospel here. If you view ministry as a pyramid, you can see here that um, even in some sense from the structure of the outline tonight, the gospel is both the foundation upon which we build our ministry and the foundation upon which we stand, and yet it is also the pinnacle to which we aspire in ministry. It provides both a firm ground, and yet spreading the good news is also the crowning gem of what we strive for within ministry. Now, likely there is somebody within this room who, when we say, okay, we're going to focus on the gospel, your initial reaction is like, oh, that's that's nice, Um, but it's also super, super fundamental and so elementary that it's boring. Okay, And I understand that to some degree, but it is my hope that after tonight you see that speaking this gospel to yourself and relishing its truth is going to be your door of escape, your rope when you're falling and failing in ministry. And beyond, beyond that, just look at verse 1 in, this, in uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. You don't think that the, that the gospel had been preached to the Corinthians before? I mean, this is Paul, right? Do you think Paul is going to let a church not hear the gospel? Of course not. What, what's happening here is Paul is rehearsing this truth in their mind. One more time, one more time, one more time. And I trust that with the Apostle Paul, I can sit here confidently knowing that the vast majority of you have accepted that and received the gospel that has been handed down to us. You continue to stand strong in it as your profession of faith, and you rest on it as your vessel of salvation to make it through the day of the Lord. I I believe that. Now, perhaps, I think this is entirely possible, my love for you guys biases me a little bit, right? Just a a touch. Um, But I would really like to believe that the people in this room are not whimsical about your faith. This seems to be a commitment that you guys grasp onto with your entire being. It's not like a little vain fad, but it is the hope that you are clinging to, to have hope at having life for the eschaton, right? You are hoping on Christ. It's amazing though, how many people, how many pastors, they start with the gospel, but you slowly drift away from it over time. It's like one little wave 
hits the ship and another little wave and it's one degree of turning at a time but the next thing you know you look up and you're not at all on the same path of the gospel whatsoever at all it's a course entirely different from the gospel looking at verse 3 then we must keep the gospel as central keep your eyes fixed on Jesus but poetic little sayings like that like fix your eyes on the gospel they're almost so pithy in my pithy just like uh, meaningless little words that are thrown out there that it's just so pithy that it doesn't mean anything at all right like it's oh that's that's nice that's a good little saying but what does that actually mean so to be a little bit more blunt terms it's easy for church growth to accidentally become the main thing it is easy for giving more money at church to get more money in the door to become the main goal. It's easy for the worship team to become focused on performance and not on worshiping the Lord. So how easy is it for our ministry to become an idol itself to make us feel like we have purpose? It's not about the people at that point. We aren't loving people. We're making an idol out of our own ministry. And that's not, that's not what gospel ministry is. That's not at all what gospel ministry is. It's you feeling better about yourself. And that doesn't matter in the light of eternity. Don't forget that ministry is a means to an end. And it's that end that we have to keep focusing on, which is knowing and making Jesus known. As Paul says there in verse 3, I believe the gospel is a matter of first or primary importance then. So what then is the gospel? Uh, Paul spells this gospel story out itself. It is things that we must believe, things that we must place our faith in Christ, have this heart change um, with repentance and turning towards God. So what do we have here? What are the elements? What are these fundamental things that if we get these things right in life, these are the top things that will ever matter that we grasp onto? So we, we have to have a firm conviction on these points. First, um, and this is moving directly through the text. So if you're following along, you can see this is right from the text. First, Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. Do you know that you're naturally a sinner in need of a savior? And typically that question is posed to non-Christians. And yet as I pondered that question, I would, I would suggest that it is the most mature Christian in this room that knows the gravity of that question better than any other. The, the unbeliever coming to faith in Christ only has the tip of the iceberg on that they're a sinner in need of a savior. It's the mature in the faith that are so desperately aware of their need for Christ. Second and third, Jesus was buried and raised on the third day according to scripture. It wasn't a ghost and he wasn't asleep. Christ really died a bodily death and was really resurrected from that death. Crowned as king, Every single knee has to bow before Christ. Now, Christians have a really unique opportunity. Everyone's bowing the knee at some point. Christians get to do it in this lifetime voluntarily where, I, where we place our faith in him and submit to him in this life. And then Paul kind of includes a little bit of an odd one that I think we don't focus on quite as much that Paul emphasizes that Jesus was seen. Uh, Jesus appeared to Peter. He appeared to the apostles, to the 500, James, the apostles, those that were eyewitnesses, that is. Um, and this, this is also an important portion of the gospel story. The resurrection was real, okay? That's what I think Paul's really trying to get at here. The resurrection was real. That simple statement is going to guide you and protect you in your ministry. 
if you're a thinking individual, there's going to come a time when you have questions about this whole deal of Christianity. There's going to come a time when you are tempted to not hold fast to that gospel uh, that was once delivered to you. Um, I I think I'll go ahead and ask this question. Just, I, I think it's such a common experience. How many of you have really had that moment of like, either I accept it all or I throw it all out and there's no in between. Like I, I'm just curious. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a pretty common, if you have half a brain and somebody told you a guy came back from the dead. Yeah. You should probably think about that. But that question is going to be the point that you have to get around. Uh, There's the whole house of cards stands or falls on this point. And since we weren't eyewitnesses, we're trusting apostolic testimony, but in your worst times of doubt, I would suggest that you flipping around this question may be the most helpful. How could Jesus have not risen from the dead? How could Jesus have not risen from the dead? With the testimony of all these individuals who separately experienced the same thing, how could a rational individual dismiss it as just a synced hallucination, for instance? But there was one more individual that Christ had to appear to, and that was to Paul. Welcome to... Um, there was one more person that Paul had to appear to, and that apostle was none other than Paul on the Damascus Road. Paul likens himself to one who is untimely born there in the text. If you, um, I, I, would say, I would guess that most of your translations are going to have it that way, but this little phrase has caused a good bit of stir. Like, why would Paul use this word? Well, this word is a pretty strong word. It means miscarriage, abortion, stillborn premature birth. So why is Paul referring to him as himself, basically as a premature birth, a miscarriage? Um, This apostle was born, Paul, uh, at a time that by human expectation was the wrong time. Paul was converted at the wrong time. He wasn't the right guy for the job, according to human expectations. Um, And just generally not the kind of guy that you would expect to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet so many scholars see all of Paul's theology boiled down to his Damascus Road experience. Why do we see such an emphasis on the sovereignty of God in Paul? Why do we see such a theme of being spiritually dead, like a miscarried child, uh, is physically? Because that's Paul's experience with Christ. Paul did not choose God. God chose Paul. God gave life to Paul. God initiated toward Paul. God sought that one lamb named Paul and brought him back to the 99. Paul did not wander back into the sheepfold. And brother and sister, while you and I may not have had physical appearance, if you, if you have, we should really probably have a conversation about that, but if you had a physical appearance, you may not have had a physical appearance of the Lord Jesus in your conversion, and yet the Lord Jesus is coming to us. God still seeks and saves sinners. The Holy Spirit made Christ beautiful to your heart, and that was not a natural occurrence. Um, Christ appeared to you and I, unlikely as it is, and brought us to him. So that's going to take us to our second point, and this is where we really start to see that this isn't just some general gospel. This isn't just some general principle, but I think you'll really start to see yourself in this text as we move into our second point, guilt, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Uh, Paul was called to 
his task of being an apostle, and yet he considered himself the least unworthy because of his past sins. And so what I want you to do, flip it over to the good side on your outline, and I'm sure Lindsay has 10,000 pens, which I... I actually don't. Okay, I have a few pens here, and you can pass it around. Um, what I want you to do is in maybe, maybe one word, and I'm not saying you can't share this. If there is someone that you trust and you want to share this with, that's totally fine. But what I want you to do is jot one word down maybe that will clue your mind to possibly your most substantial regret in life, that, that one sin that when you think back on things in life that are a shame in your past, what is that one thing that you think of? What is that one major regret? And pick the most obscure word you want. I don't really care, but find that thing that when you look back across the planes of your life, you, you really, it's a heavy thing that you wish, wish would just disappear for that matter give you a second to do that. Just wherever you want. I provide a little room on the other side beneath good on purpose, but wherever you wish. I don't bring up these memories. These memories are possibly some of those painful memories that we each have. Um, and I don't bring them up to be unnecessarily depressing, unnecessarily hurtful. But what I do wish to draw out is that all of us in this room are so incredibly, overwhelmingly, mind-bogglingly undeserving of God's grace. I am so undeserving of God's grace. In this group, in this room, there are people that have known me since I was six years old. There are those that have known me since I was 12 years old. There are those that have known me since I was 14 year, years old, 16, 20, also 22. Um, but though I grew up in a Christian home, you all know, because you've been there, that I made plenty of mistakes and I look back over the course of my life and the very testimony of my life screams to me that I have no business inherently to be sitting here teaching you guys. But I'm, I'm in no way alone in this. I was just talking with someone here recently who used this very word, quote, unworthy, when describing a newfound role of service within the kingdom, a way to advance the kingdom. And honestly, the more I thought about it, that grasping that word of unworthy I hope, I hope that is a shared sentiment among all of us. Uh, we are a, we are a freaking mess without Jesus. Um, and yet the more wrong we have done, the more wondrous his mercy becomes in our life. Luke 7, 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. So let's say you have a lot of sins to be forgiven. You're going to love that person who forgave you a lot. The person who's forgiven less is going to love less. That's the principle Jesus is going to try to draw out there. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you don't have that dramatic of a tes testimony. You don't have dramatic things, so to speak, to be forgiven of. So how could you love that much? 
And I would, I would offer that for your forgiveness to seem greater, you must see your sin for as great as it was. You know, the, there's a Latin phrase for it that I, I can't think of off the top of my head, but the holier you become, the more, the more starlit all your sins seem to become, the more obvious they become. And so if you say, I don't have that dramatic of a testimony, see how one sin is so great in the eyes of God. Think of one ounce of your most innocent little sin and having to show that in front of a holy God. Forget that. For that matter, think of the most righteous appearing deed that you've ever done, but with decaying and rotten motives behind it and having to show that to a holy God. That might be even worse. Um, Think of the worst words that have ever escaped your lips, and those have to be played across the jumbotron of heaven and God Almighty. The grandeur of your sin should make you want to scream, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy before God's presence. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. I, I ha- when I thought of this text, and I, you know, thinking of words particularly that you're like, man, I just, you know, if no one could ever hear that, that would be fine with me. And, and Isaiah literally has the thing that we probably all f- should fear most is that God visits you and sees your unclean lips like that in front of you. That, that word uh, lost, it just hit me. I haven't thought about this in a long time. That word lost is a, a soft translation. It is, I am doomed, I'm damned, we are in deep trouble. Okay, that's what Isaiah is saying there. Um, so without the gospel, you are remarkably guilty, but you have found God's grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10 This is my life verse right here, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Um, if you wish for a more visual picture, Isaiah 6, uh, 6 through 7, that's a continuation of that passage. Then one of the seraphim came to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with his tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. Quote, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yes, that guilt is real, but God's grace is greater. What God, sorry, what you can't forget, God cannot remember any longer. By God's grace, you are what you are. I love the simplicity of that statement. Maybe you are far removed from your days of walking in darkness and you're, you're well on your way to doing great things in ministry. Fantastic then remember that it is God's grace in the gospel that wiped that guilt clean. But that group of people is not the people that I wrote this lesson for um, that are already doing great. The people that I am 
preaching this message to are those who are drowning in their utter unworthiness, paralyzed by it. I don't care whether it's gossip or sexual sin or murder that you jotted down on that piece of paper. No one is beyond the grace of God to serve in his kingdom, even you. The idea behind these two years with Koinonia is that we are going to develop a bunch of active people who are serving within the local church. I fear, though, that some of you may feel so unworthy because of who you have been or so incapable that you don't even want to try. Perhaps it's those past sins of yours, and maybe it's just something as simple as that you can't speak well, or you can't play an instrument well, or you can't interact well. But the unworthiness and the unlikeliness of the vessel is what brings God the most glory, okay? If you are incompetent and capable and you start somewhere and you work to be better, that is what brings glory to God. For that matter, look around this room. See, Do you not see a bunch of misfits? Do you not see a bunch of weirdos? It is upon these which the power of God is most clearly manifest. Now, the title of this lesson is Good, which, by the way, on the back of that paper, took a long time to track down that font, but I found it. The, the word is good. That's what we've titled tonight. This is a saying of Jocko Willink. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, yeah, some of you are nodding. Yeah, it's a Navy SEAL, right? They, they always carry that same vibe. Every, I, I listen to him. I love it. I love it. Whenever something goes wrong for him and something tragic happens in life, he says, I posted a video about this, good. That is his word. The mission fell apart. Good. You lost your job? Good. That injury prevents you from performing at the same level? Good. On the secular level, this guy can see that every single setback in life provides opportunities. And yet, as Christians, from the spiritual perspective, God is working every single thing, actually, for our good. According to God's sovereign plan, every setback, every failure, everything that didn't go according to plan, every single way in which you are unworthy— Every single way in which you are unworthy exists to maximize his glory and our good. Now, this is not to say that everything in life is inherently good. I, I was thinking about this from a more philosophical perspective. I was like, is that actually a good philosophy to say that good to everything? And that's not necessarily the case. Not everything is actually good. There are things that are actually evil, that are actually bad. But it is to say that in every single bad thing... As a Christian, you can have genuine hope that God is going to use it for good. You come from a broken family, that is horribly bad, but God can mend it and mend the broken and use it for good. You violated God's law and committed some egregious sexual sin, that is bad. And does it render you unworthy? Yes. But God can take you out from where you have been and use it for good. You were a murderer who persecuted the church of God, the eschatological temple of God. It's about as bad as it gets. That is perhaps the worst of all, and yet God can use Paul for good. So, to our fourth point here, the gospel takes our guilt and buries it in grace, which causes us to become hungry for our fourth point, growth. What Paul sees, when Paul sees God grace taking an unworthy vessel into his service it doesn't call back uh, cause paul to sit back and shut down and say god i could just never serve you i'm just so unworthy i'm sorry i just i can't can't do it 
No, Paul saw God's grace placed on him as motivation. If God loved me this much to save a wretch like me, then I had better give my all for him. Paul was dedicated to living in God's grace to bring about as much good as he could, despite all of the bad that he had done. And so when you think you're unworthy, I want you to think through th- three things. Number one, when you, am I unworthy? First, yes, that's correct. You are unworthy. Two, grace can bring good from your unworthiness. Okay? You can have good that comes out of a very bleak picture. And then three, get after it, right? Three, get after it. Grace is not passive magic, okay? Paul didn't wake up one day and say, wow, you know, I've preached the gospel to the whole world, Colossians 1. You know, he, I mean, shipwrecks and fights and stonings and maybe a resurrection somewhere in there, you don't know. I mean, Paul is working at this stuff. Grace causes Paul to work harder than any of them. So take that troubled past of yours and say, it's time to get to work. Instead of it being a legalism that declares work in order that you might receive grace, this becomes love that declares receive grace in order that you might work. And it becomes grace-motivated effort as a result of it. That's a ripoff of Augustine's wonderful quote that says, Paul did not labor in order to receive grace, but he received grace so that he might labor. No better way to say it. That is what love, not legalism, is the type of service that we want in the church. So seeing how much God has done for you produces in you this desire to do so much for the one who saved you. By definition, then, you are who you are. Right? That's why I love the verse. That's why it's my life verse. Every single time I come to this verse, it's correct. That's right. I am who I am. Look at that. I still am who I am. You are where you are. That's by God's grace. Don't let what you've done hold you back from going forward. Instead, use these things as fuel to see how much God loved you and to propel you down the road of ministry. So over the next two years, we're going to cover 10 different areas beyond spiritual disciplines, right? Different spiritual gifts, different areas you can serve in within the church. It's going to be a lot, and I hope that each of you can find your little niche within it. But here is my word of challenge tonight on our inauguration, on this cusp of our new direction, this whole two-year rotation. Become spiritually disciplined in the broadest sense, and then pursue your area of ministry with utmost intensity. Okay, I'll say it again become just spiritually disciplined in general. That's why we're starting with this base of spiritual disciplines. But then after you have your broad base of fundamental rebounding and passing and all these fundamental elements down, then really go after the area that God has gifted you in specifically with crazy utmost intensity. Work harder than anyone you know in Bible reading, in prayer. Work harder in fasting. Get the fundamentals down. And as you develop that base, then work harder than anyone else to become a better teacher, a better counselor, a better musician, a better artist, a better missionary, a better leader, a better academic, a better evangelist, financier, etc. Give it everything you've got. Don't leave anything out on the court. And some of you may know Tim Duncan's other famous quote, good, better, best, never let it rest until your good is better and your better is best. I, it's right. I mean, you don't get much better and more accurate than that. 
So when you start to experience this growth because of your hard work and spiritual discipline, don't forget where it came from and what moved you away from sin in your life. Um, your redemption and resurrection from a life of dead sin was God's grace. Grace. Your growth and spiritual effort, that's also God's grace. Uh, as a general principle, if it's good, it didn't begin with you. Uh, if, if it's bad, it, it might have. Uh, but if it's good, it didn't begin with you. One commentator put it this way, thus in Pauline theology, even though his labor is a response to grace, it is more properly seen as an effect of grace. All is of grace, nothing is deserved. Uh, Paul speaks of this general point earlier in uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, uh, just a catch-all verse that is super, super helpful to add to your repertoire, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Every good motive, every good action, every good thought, every bit of growth that you have within the gospel, that is all of grace and not of your own doing. After conversion, we cooperate with God's grace and sanctification, which is synergistic. Justification is monergistic. That is all of God. That is God coming down and engaging in your life. But after that, sanctification is indeed synergistic. So when your weaknesses become strength and your deficiencies become your excellencies, proclaim that dual truth with Paul, I, yet not I. Okay, I uh, yet not I. It's it's me. I actually did put in the work, and yet it is not me because all of that begins with God's grace. Yes. Definition truth. Of which. Synergistic. Mm-hmm. That's fun. That's a. Um, mono one, sinner two. Uh, so it's it's basically God is acting unilaterally in salvation. He is drawing you to Himself. You didn't do anything to contribute to salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It is God's grace alone that saves. Sanctification, our our growth in grace after justification or our salvation, that growth in grace after our salvation uh, episode is synergistic. It's both of us working together. It is God's grace and our efforts coming along hand in hand to move towards higher and higher degrees of holiness or in uh, Paul's terms from one degree of glory to the next. So it's important to maintain that justification is an instantaneous point in time, and then don't forget the sanctification doctrine that comes after it. It's not justification drawn out. It is, boom, you are a Christian, and then we are working in God's grace to grow. Uh, if you are looking for a theological term, just to jot down into your dictionary, the doctrine of divine concurrence is very helpful here. R.C. Sproul has a great video out on this. Concurrence, like think of two rivers coming together. That's concurring of a river and it is a concurrence of our effort and the grace of God that is empowering every single bit of that effort that we have so after beginning with the gospel showing us his personal guilt that was overrun by grace to produce growth we see that Paul turns back one last time uh, to the gospel uh, one more time there in verse 11 whether then it was I they, so we preach, and so you believe. As uh, Donald Whitney comments in the first chapter of Spiritual Disciplines here, which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just so confident that you guys are five chapters deep, and I, I wouldn't even, I, yeah, I mean, you guys are on schedule for sure. Um, the gospel is not merely for salvation, it's for forever, okay? 
Uh, oftentimes the gospel is framed as this entry point into the kingdom that isn't that deep. And if you want to go deep in your faith, then you have to go beyond the gospel. And that, that way of thinking is not only toxic, but ridiculous as well. Uh, Paul sort of returns from sort of an excursus in the text, if you will, um, by verse 11, and he gets back to the main point, which is, in this case, the gospel, the resurrection, and how we're going to have a future resurrection. Um, but Paul doesn't really care. Whoever it was, they preached the gospel to you, and uh, somebody preached, and the Corinthians believed. And just as a little side note here, one of my favorite things in the book of First Corinthians is Paul saying, you know, I didn't baptize anyone. You know, actually I might've baptized five. I don't really know. You guys got baptized somehow. Here we are. Don't, don't worry about it. You're baptizing in the church. Um, but no, Paul is just concerned. He's not concerned about his own prestige in this. He's concerned that the gospel was preached and the Corinthians believed. So what is just delightful about this text for our purposes is that we basically have Paul's growth in grace is sandwiched between the two buns of the gospel. And, you know, when I saw that, I just was like, wow, I love sandwiches. <laughs> and and here we see a beautiful peanut butter and jelly um, of the gospel growth in grace. Um, all of Paul's running, all of his ministry, all of his working, all of it is for the sake of the gospel. Retrospectively, the gospel makes us indebted permanently to Christ. I love, I can't even think of the reference off the top of my head, but Paul is basically saying, I don't know why you're, I don't know why you're clapping. No, um, I don't know why you're praising me. I, I'm just, I have a debt. I have to pay it. This is my life's duty. And he's not in the doldrums about his duty. It's a delightful duty, but it's a duty. He isn't. He shouldn't be getting pat on the back. This is his rightful duty to God. And yet prospectively, we want to spread the gospel to all those around us. So on one hand, we look back and it's like, hey, I have to serve. This is, I mean, God saved me. This is, I, I got to do this. And yet looking forward, we, we want to be taking the gospel to the nations. So what does this look like practically? On one hand, keeping ministry Christocentric and gospel-centered challenges me when my focus drifts. So being an evangelist and missional is not necessarily my strong suit personally. Uh, thus seeing that all of the Christian life forever revolves around the gospel and the good news helps keep me looking to disciple others. On the other hand though, the good news helps me to keep saying good when times are really, really tough. The good news helps me to keep saying good when times are tough. Sometimes when things go wrong in life and in ministry, it is very difficult to see how there could be any good that comes out of a situation that is so, so bad. Not only does the overwhelming grace of God spur us to keep going, but you can look back on the own, your own unlikeliness as a vessel and say, okay, there is a chance that some good could come out of this. Um, there may, uh, just look back at yourself at your worst, your darkest place. And if someone were to come along and just objectively look at you and say, is there much gospel centered good that's going to come out of this person's life? I, I would say there has been a point for almost every one of us in this room where if someone just stopped and looked, they they might have had trouble seeing what sort of good was going to come out of your life. And yet this is exactly what God and the gospel does and do. It, it takes the bleakest and the weakest so that God might be glorified above all. In summary then, uh, Koinonia, let the gospel be the foundation upon which you build your life and ministry. 
remember the guilt that you accrued being enemy, an enemy of God, and yet remember all the more the grace that God has had and has placed upon you to save you to himself and from himself. So we really, honestly, we sit at a crossroads here within Koinonia. Do we take that grace and appropriate it to growth? I mean, I mean, anyone can create a legalistic cult, honestly, uh, and some fundamentalist legalistic circles really flirt on that line, if I may be so bold. But we have an opportunity to have all, we have all this grace. I mean, there is so many gracious things that God has done to bring this group together. And so we have an opportunity to either just sort of squander that grace or to really take it, to appropriate it, and to work our butt off and to grow within it. So is Koinonia going to be a group that outworks everyone around them, not because they think they're better than everyone around them, but because, probably they know they don't, but because they have realized more fully the grace of God in the gospel? Or is Koinonia just going to be a light that fades as another dying social club? I mean, our... our Koinonia literally means fellowship, and it's not a fellowship without purpose. It's not hanging out. It's not getting ice cream. Nothing wrong with those things, but that is not fellowship with a purpose. It's not going anywhere. It's not missional. So are we going to grow in that grace? That is the crossroads we sit at. Um, um, leading this thing, it's, it's a, it's a, this new format is risky, okay? It's risky to me, and the reason I say that is it's going to depend on other people, and that is about the riskiest thing I could do as a leader. Um, I think this is why we see the modern American church where it's at. You know, Put the focus on one guy. It's a little re- less risky because not everyone actually has to minister their spiritual gifts. We'll just really hone in on this one dude and we'll call it even and show up for an hour and that'll be it. Um, we don't have to depend on the consistency of others. But here at Koinonia, I want to have a culture where everyone does their part. And that's risky. Um, it's putting our group on the line, for that matter, to depend on other people to actually minister their gifts to one another. And, and me not be there is the safety net that I've always been for this group. You know, you show up and make things happen, but it can't be like that if we're actually going to grow. You have to take risks. You have to put yourself out there. You actually have to give people an opportunity to minister their gifts if you want to see real growth in a group. Even one person thinking, oh, someone, someone else will have done the reading, so I don't have to, or, you know, quote, I don't really have to accomplish a practicum in my area. Other people are already doing stuff, or perhaps, I would say this one's the saddest of them all, is that there's already someone better at it than me, so I'll just stay out of it. That's probably the worst one of all. Um, any one of those thoughts is, even even one person, I mean it, in a group this size, even one person thinking that way will weigh us down significantly. So I ask then that you outwork anyone else here. If anything smells of apathy to you, crush it. If anything smells of apathy, crush it, throw it out, get rid of it. We can't afford that. We don't have, we don't have the bandwidth for apathy. This is the only way that a format predicated upon people using their spiritual gifts can long survive, honestly. So finally, as you grow, as you work, remember that it is all still God's grace 
in the gospel. The gospel is at the beginning. It is your entry point into the kingdom. It's also in the middle. It's everything that you're doing right now. It's everything that I hope we'll be doing over the next two years. And finally, it's also the end to which we strive. It is our pinnacle. It is our uh, coup de grace. It is our highest achievement. And so the gospel is at the beginning. It is in the middle and it is the end to which we strive. 1 Corinthians 9, 23 through 27 to close. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but, not, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Amen. All right, Nathan's going to close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, you see us. You know us. You see our sins and you see our strengths and you see our weaknesses. You see where, where you want us to be and what we could be. And I pray that as, as this specifically these two months go on that we would earnestly work and we would earnestly desire to grow in you that we would put forth the effort that we would strengthen our foundation in you that we would become greater versions of who we are right now so we can be used as as better vessels for the kingdom that we would not be complacent that we would see the great debt that we have have incurred on our lives through the sin that we that we do every single day um, whether it's a thought or a, a deed or whatever it might be we every single day we show our unworthiness um, because we are perfect and we're not going to be but we can we can continue to Turn to you and, and, and find grace and, and peace and that's such a wonderful thing and something we should not take for granted um, God I, I pray that you turn this group into to, to one that is on fire for you that we can see where we've been we can see the debt that we owe and we can see what grace you've given to us and that it spurs us on for for years to come and, and until our death that, that we can honestly make a difference for this church that we're a part of for this city that we're in for this nation that we that needs needs people to be on fire for you and, and to be to be actually Christian um so just give us the discipline, give us the accountability with one another that we would reach out, that we would actually read the book, actually do the practicums, that we would actually become better and, and use the gifts that we have for you. Um, I pray that you be with every single person here this week, that you would give us opportunities to 
glorify you, that we would have opportunities to witness to those around us, um, and that you would keep each one of us safe. And I pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Um, Josh, Josh is going to... Um, Josh is going to have a uh, call to worship. Let me let me give you just a little bit of um, insight on how things are going to go in the new format. So on teaching evenings, um, and this evening it's just Josh and Danny, but um, we're looking to include new people in worship, right, that don't normally play, that maybe you aren't that good. That's okay. That's fine. This is the place to do it. Um, so Josh has a call to worship, which is something else that we're going to be doing mainly on non-teaching nights. So what we're going to be doing is we will either take um, one of the songs that Pastor David will be singing tomorrow with, at LifePoint, or we'll be taking the text that LifePoint will be teaching on book discussion nights generally, and, um, and we'll be just walking through the lyrics of it. We'll be walking through the text real briefly to sort of set our minds for what will come in about 12 hours, um, and, uh, and, and to really meditate on that. So tonight, Josh has um, some of the lyrics from one song for tomorrow, and then we'll be singing two songs here tonight. When did you read it, Christian? Let's do it after. God, the uncreated one, the author of salvation, who wrote the laws of time and space and fashioned worlds to his design, the one whom angel hosts revere upon the stars like chandeliers, numbered every grain of sand, knows the heart of every man. He is king forever. He is king forever. He is king forevermore. God, our fortress and our strength, the rock on which we can depend, matchless in his majesty, his power and authority, shaken by the schemes, unshaken by the schemes of man, never changing, great I am. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. He is faithful through it all. Crown him king forever. Crown him king forever. Crown him king forevermore. Mighty God in mortal flesh, forsaken by a traitor's kiss, the curse of sin and centuries did pierce the lowly prince of peace. Lifted high the sinless man, crucified the spotless lamb, buried by the sons of man, rescued by the father's hand, to reign as king forever, reign as king forever, reign as king forevermore. King eternal, God of grace, we crown you with the highest praise. Heaven shouts and saints adore. You are holy, holy, holy Lord. What joy and everlasting life. All is love and faith is sight. Justice rolls and praises rise at the name of Jesus Christ. King of kings forever. King of kings forever. King of kings forevermore. Tonight we'll be um, singing first, um, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And you can, I'll give you a few moments to look that up.
Church Arise is our next song.
Um, thank you all. Thank you for being here. Thanks for packing it out. Thanks for showing up and putting in the effort. There are about countless other things you could do with a Saturday night. And so I appreciate you taking this first step in our dedication. Next week, um, there is no this. Um, we have our flex week next week, so this will be, we will not be meeting next week. There will be things going on, but we will not be meeting. Um, beyond that, um, what is after that, the 21st, we'll be discussing uh, chapters one through four in spiritual disciplines. So if you have fallen behind on Julia's reading plan, at the very least, chapters one through four by the 21st, and definitely chapters five through eight on the 28th, because Jim will be here. So. <laughs> um, but no, so after... After that, the only the only other logistical thing that I would like to comment is that the structure. So I have that I have that paper. It, that's on band. If you don't have it, reach out to me. I'll be happy to get it to you. Um, what we're going to do? We're going to have prayer groups. We're going to have everything like normal. Then we're going to split into groups of about four, and we're going to go through it. That way, no one can wallflower. Everyone has to participate. Everyone has to engage. I'm going to do that for about 20 minutes. We're going to come to large group. We'll have probably a designated talker from each group. And so the best ideas will have come to the surface, I hope, and uh, not our first ideas. And um, we'll have a very profitable group discussion, hopefully, for about another 20 minutes. Um, Nathan will be leading through that and moderating, basically, as we go. And then the last 10, um, <laughs> you're stuck with me again. And we'll either be going through a song or, um, or looking at the text for Sunday morning. So thank you all. That is all. We are only one minute behind. I love it. I guess I do have that mood I'm setting that serious mood aside um, okay so back to back to our default mode um, Kroger no on bread well okay we do have to take a picture first because this is our first time Jake you are you're still here for a little bit right okay <laughs> when that day comes when it is maybe your if, if this whole thing goes through then um, then we will collectively go to Freddy's just for you. But that day, <laughs> but today yeah. is not that day. Yeah. 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 What a quote! What a quote! There may come a day when the strength of men fails, but I will not give in Freddy's today. Um, okay, so we're gonna get our picture. I'm sure there will be a group that goes to Kroger to get random odds and ends.